Let's head over to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Uh, If you remember last week, we were learning about, uh, or rather Jesus was talking about, and we were learning about loving our enemies, uh, which made me wonder this week if someone was going to knock on my door with a list of nice things to do and tell me, well, I guess I'm supposed to do this for you, but alas, that did not happen. Um, Anyway, before we begin... Uh, I want you to remember that our our passage today is within a wider context, right? It's not just showing up out of the blue with nothing nothing around it. Uh, And so as we think about that, I want you to remember that Jesus is still preaching the same sermon, the sermon that goes by the title of the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, And he's teaching, right, not just his apostles, but all his disciples, a, a wider group of those who are following Jesus and so far, he, he's told these disciples, us as well, that, that we're going to face suffering in this life because of our faith. And he's told us we're going to have enemies in this life and that we need to love those enemies. And so Jesus is teaching us in, in all these different ways, the way that we are to interact in, in relationships that are something less than perfect and, and to react or interact in a way that, that glorifies the Lord. And so Jesus gave us this, the, the golden rule last time, right? We, uh, we saw it right before. And, and as you wish the others would do to you, do so to them. And then the part, passage we're going to read this morning comes immediately after this phrase. And I want you to keep this in your mind as we go through it. He says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If you've got your Bible open and you look at that, you see that capital F. It's talking about God as your Father, right? Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Uh, so we're going to read this in, in three sections today, and our first one's just going to be verses 37 uh, and 38. So if you will, uh, got your Bible open, follow along as I read those verses. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage to understand. It's a difficult passage to to know how and when to apply it. Please give us wisdom this morning. Please enlighten our minds as we seek to know what you are teaching and as we seek to to put into practice uh, or to put it into a practice in a million different ways context. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned it, it's difficult, and, and one of the things that makes this passage particularly difficult is that it's, it's hard to get our heads around um, it, 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 get our heads around it because there's this sense that we want to immediately apply it to the concept of salvation. That's, that's where we tend to go anytime we're reading something in Scripture. And, and when we do that, what we end up seeing is this, this wrong idea of a works-based salvation, right? It, it sounds like if you judge others, then, then God will certainly judge you. And if you condemn others, then God will certainly condemn you. But if you forgive others, then, then God will forgive you. And that sounds incredibly works-based when we think of it that way. And so to understand this passage, it, it might help to, to have this idea in your head. I don't know if you can picture this right, but the idea of a, a pipe flowing into a bucket. And then as that bucket fills up, another pipe where that flows out of it. Okay, So it's like, like God pouring into your bucket, right? And, and, it, and anything that goes into it is going to flow out of it. 
Uh, because, because of Jesus then, because of Jesus, instead of judgment and instead of condemnation flowing into our bucket, what we're receiving is mercy and what we're receiving is grace. And in Christ, right, God forgives us. And, and so this, this forgiveness is flowing into that bucket, beginning to fill it up and filling it up to the, to the brim. And, and so then, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, our bucket's not filled with condemnation, is it? Our bucket's not filled with judgment, but it's filled with forgiveness. It's filled with generosity. As John 1.16 makes so clear in the gospel, Uh, That in the gospel, from the fullness of Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. And the question then that begins to rise is is this question. If the Lord has filled our buckets, right, with grace upon grace and forgiveness and with generosity, why in the world do we pour out on others judgment upon judgment, condemnation upon condemnation? Why do we withhold forgiveness from others? You see, what, what Jesus is, is showing us here, what, what we need to learn here is that, that, that as his disciples, we are to generously pour out on others in the same way that we have received from the Lord. And the end result is, in a general sense, is that those who we interact with in, in this way are less likely to judge us, less likely to condemn us, and more willing to forgive us. That, that's the overarching concept in mind. And so having that overarching idea in mind, I want us to look a little closer at each of these statements. And the first one we, we see there in our very first verse, verse 37, where Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now that verse you've probably heard many times in your life. It's one of the most memorized verses of, of all time uh, by non-believers. People that don't follow Christ. It's often recited by someone who, uh, in response rather, to someone maybe calling their ethics into question. Usually in some King Jamesy sounding paraphrase. Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? And that's the moment where you're, okay, you're right. Nothing. Um, you know, that's kind of the way we respond. This is probably, you know, one of the most quoted Bible verses in America. Because in our culture, judging someone is considered the worst of all social crimes. To make any judgment. Now, it's important before we get too much further, though, that to understand that Jesus does not mean that we're to refrain from pointing out evil or calling sin, sin. Jesus isn't saying that we should never make any judgment at all. We, we know this because we're, we're called to make all sorts of carefully thought out judgments throughout the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Jesus himself teaches in Matthew 18 and verses 15 through 17. Uh, I'm going to read this whole thing and try to follow along. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's, That's making a judgment, right? And Jesus says, that's what you're supposed to do. In 1 Timothy 5.20, Paul is instructing the church there, and and he says... As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, the, so that the rest may stand in fear. That's a judgment, right? A rebuke there. In 2 Timothy 4.2, uh, we're commanded, in fact, to reprove, to rebuke and exhort others. In the passage that we're going to look at next week, Jesus is going to be leading us to make these, in a sense, these, these judgments based on the spiritual fruit uh, that we see in people's lives. 
And, and this passage here is not forbidding making judgment, but rather warning us against a certain type of judgment that is often made, particularly in the context of people hating you, persecuting you, angry at you. The kind of judgment that's rash and selfish, angry and bitter, short-tempered, graceless judgment and condemnation. The judgment we make for the ungodly pleasure, right, that, that, that swells our pride because, you know what, we're, we're not as bad as the person we're passing judgment on. That sort of judgment. Also, Jesus is warning us against, against a judging in a situation where it's not our place to be making that judgment because, one, we don't know the information well enough to be doing so, and two, we're not in a place of authority to be making that judgment. It, it's a warning against Self-righteous judgmentalism. Listen, we're, we're being judgmental and condemning when we find ourselves shunning people because their lives are messy. You know, I, tell me I'm not the only one at some point in your life that has thought of words like this to try to, uh, in, the, in the sense of judging, you know, something along the lines of, this didn't just happen to them. They got themselves into this problem through doing something foolish. Right? It's certainly their fault. That, that's judgmentalism. And so we, we know then that, that we've been judgmental when we, when we come to an unjust conclusion about someone's motives, right? When we, when we explain someone's words or their actions to a, a third party and, and we do it in the worst possible light ever, right? Let me make sure that you understand how bad this person is. We do it in little ways. We don't even mean to sometimes, right? She, she only posted that picture of them at the concert because she wanted to make me jealous. I'll give you a, another example, a, a personal one. I, I've shared before that when I first responded to the gospel, it was at a Promise Keepers conference in June of 1995. And uh, as part of that, I, I've shared with you that it was more of this response of fear of hell than it was love of Jesus at that moment. But uh, it, it was an important moment in my life because it put me in a position to be discipled. But, but anyway, I, I want to tell you something else about that day. Uh, I remember afterwards a few people in our group coming up and telling me, this is great. You know, you're putting your faith in the Lord and trusting Him. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And, and, and being encouraged by that. But there was one guy, uh, this Christian classmate of mine, who I overheard telling a group of our friends, talking to them, uh, and he said that, that I was just doing this for the attention. And I just remember those words hurting so bad. That, that he had assumed my, my reasons. He had assumed the, the, the reasons that I had responded on that day in, in such a negative and a hurtful way. And, and being judgmental, he painted it in the worst possible light possible. Now, here's the point that Jesus is getting at here. When, when he did that, right? I, I responded to his judgmentalism like a mirror. Like a mirror. I gave it right back to him. I, I was ungracious to him from that day forward. I was quick to judge him every opportunity I had. I would assume wrong motives in his life with everything he did. We, we had a relationship as two professing Christians that lacked grace and love, and it brought shame on the name of our Lord. And it lasted for far longer than I'd like to admit. See, that's, that's how this can play out terribly within the covenant community, right? 
Now, this also has huge implications for the Great Commission, for, for how the gospel is, is spreading out into the world, right? There, there, there is this classic scene, I, I love it, in the movie Nacho Libre, uh, where, where Jack Black, who I've been told is my doppelganger, what is the word, my, I look like him sometimes. You told me that once, didn't you? A few people have actually said this. Anyway, um, he's, he's a wrestler is what he is in Mexico, in uh, Luchador, and he's nervous about this upcoming wrestling match. And so he says to, to his wrestling partner, who is this guy, Esqueleto, and he says to him, I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? You have to say it like that, by the way. And, and his friend responds, he says, because I never got around to it, okay? Which, weird response. But then he says this. He says, I don't know why you always have to be judging me. And, and that's the phrase right there that comes in. I don't, I don't know why you always have to be judging me. See, that's, that's actually not a bad picture of what Jesus is getting at here. When, when we are judgmental in words or tone, when, when we are needlessly, right? We needlessly then put people on the de- defense, which is really not a great place from which to be hearing the gospel. I'll say this, after 16 years of vocational ministry of some sort, I have never met a single person, not a single person who says that they fell in love with Jesus and they believed the gospel because some Christian had judged them and condemned them for for their ethics. Not one. I mean, you think about your own life. Have you ever heard anyone give that testimony? They just ripped into me for this sin in my life and I loved Jesus. Never. Never. I mean, we're, we're familiar with Westboro Baptist, who comes over all the time protesting. They have never had a single convert from among those who, who they hatefully protest against. Not a one. See, there's quite a difference between shouting at someone you can't stand about all the ter- her- terrible things they're doing and, and, and rather brokenheartedly sharing your concern with someone that you care for. Quite a difference. And Jesus wants his disciples to not be so quick to judgment, not so quick to condemnation for, yes, the sake of his glory, for the sake of unity among ourselves, but also for the sake of the Great Commission. And then in verse 37, we we see the next phrase here. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. See, this is a, a contrast from his first statement. Jesus contrasts judging and condemning with forgiving and, and, and giving or Judging and condemning with forgiving and giving. Again, you, you think about the, the pipe illustration, right? The, the pipe coming in of God's forgiveness that flows into the bucket. If we're unwilling to forgive someone else, it's because we've not understood the forgiveness that we've received. Or, or maybe, and this is where it's a big concern, uh, maybe we've not received the forgiveness because we haven't truly trusted in Jesus. That's a scary thing to say, and I, I don't want you to over go that direction, but, but it's something to say if we're unwilling to ever forgive someone. Um, one of my favorite authors is, is Malcolm Gladwell. Laura and I picked up one of his books last summer, a very interesting author. Uh, anyway, he's writing, while he's writing this book called David and Goliath, uh, which don't think Christian book exactly, so much as just a general idea of, of people defeating big objects in their way. Um, but anyway, he, he said while writing this book that he, he had rediscovered his Christian faith, which he had abandoned many, many years before. And in this interview, he said this. He said, when I was writing the book, I went to see a woman in Winnipeg by the name of Wilma Dirksen. Thirty years before, her teenage daughter, Candace, had disappeared on her way home from school. 
The city at the time launched the largest manhunt in history, and after a week, Candace's body was found in a hut a quarter mile from the Durkinsons' house. Her hands and her feet had been bound. At the time, Wilma and her husband were called down into the police station. They were given this news, and they had to, to walk outside and, and, and face this news reporters. Uh, the funeral was going to be the next day. And as the reporters stand up before them, one of the reporters asked Cliff, the husband, asked him this, how do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? And he responded, we, we'd like to know who the person or persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. Wilma, the, the mother of this girl, spoke next, saying, our, our main concern was to find Candace. We found her. And then she went on, I can't say at this point I forgive this person, but we've all done something dreadful in our lives or have felt the urge to do so. And Malcolm, who's coming from the perspective of someone who's completely abandoned his faith years earlier, Malcolm says that the emphasis there was on that phrase, at this point, meaning she's, she's thinking about forgiving. That's what she's working to. And, and Malcolm was, was, was amazed at the Durkins. As he put it, he said that they had a peculiar and inexplicable power to speak of forgiving this person who had murdered their daughter. To extend forgiveness to another is to show that we ourselves have been forgiven simply because it proves that the grace of God is working in our hearts with power. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with forgiving others. That doesn't mean we're not going to fall back into that, that natural temptation to once again become bitter, to once again want to hold this against them, to once again return to that unforgiving sense. But let us never give up the battle because we have been massively, massively forgiven in the gospel by God. Jesus here also speaks of, of generosity and, and giving, right? You can go a hundred different directions with this. But, you know, the, the, one of the things that I love about this is that Jesus could have worded this negatively or positively, but he words it positively because he expects that his disciples are going to be generous people. That's the norm that he expects from this. And then in that, we see that interesting phrase there in verse 38 that you probably read like I did. and like, I have no idea what this means, right? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. See, he's explaining how, how a good merchant measures something like flour at this time. You'd show up and he'd have his bag full of it and he'd take a measure. It's a good measure, one that can be trusted, that's accurate. And he would dip into that, right? Um, and, and then he would begin to press it down to make sure that the flour was getting into those little gaps. And then they'd hit it on something as they shake it together. And the idea there is it's going to get out any of the little, little holes of air that might have been in there to make sure there's absolutely no room left in this, this measuring thing. And then at the end, they would even heap a little bit on the top just to make sure in no way were, were you given anything less than what you were intending to do. And then the people would wear tunics, which were not unlike the robes we wear, um, and they'd hold it up like this, and it becomes a bowl in their lap, and that's where it'd be dumped into them. It'd be transferred over to them. Um, I don't know exactly what they do afterwards. They put it in their own bag or what, but, but that's the image here. And it's the kind of, uh, what he's getting at is this is the kind of generous serving right it's kind of like when you go to chick-fil-a and you get your fries and they're overflowing and you're really excited because okay there's plenty of them there they have been generous with these fries and it just gives you great joy to know that um that's the kind of generosity they're talking about 
And, and then it connects it to this idea, right, that and we see that, you know, for with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. It's this, this generality that, that, God, that Jesus is teaching here. If we're generous to others, the usual way of working is that they are going to be generous in return. It's not a one-for-one guarantee, but, but he's teaching that's the general way these things work. The, the heart of the issue then is this, that, that, you know, that we can be generous to others because the Lord is generous with us. That's a, a huge thing to understand. That we can be generous to others because the Lord has been generous to us. We, uh, we had a friend who told our children one time, you know, if you are ever out, you know, be willing to give your stuff because we'll replace it. And, and that was a powerful thing to her, her children because they understood my parents are so generous that I, I can freely give things away and, and, and rest in that. And, and this, is, this is generosity, whether we're talking about money, whether we're talking about time. It might be in the way that we are gracious to someone. There is a way to be generous in your graciousness or in forgiveness or in mercy. In, in everything that you can think of, there's a way that we can be generous because the Lord has been generous to us. I mean, people, people tend to respond generously when we're generous. I mean, think about just conversations that you've had. You, you ever <clears throat> had a, a confrontation where you have to go and talk to someone about something they did to you, right? Some, 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 uh, something wrong in that way. And, and you go in and you're prepared for war with them, right? I'm going to tell them what they do, and I have six things ready to go, and, and, and I'm prepared to, to do this. And, and what happens? You ever been in that situation, and they just confess, absolutely. You're right. What I did was terrible. I, I have no excuse. I'm, an, I'm embarrassed. But will you forgive me for what I, what I did to you? What, what's that do to you when that happens? That whole list you have, right? There's, just, there's no place for it. There's no use for it. You kind of you power down at that moment. We, we respond with the generosity that we, we just received in that regard, which, which is much different than when someone tenses up and, and wants to fight back. No, I didn't. And then they start listing off everything you do. That's when you power up and you go into battle. That quickly becomes war. It, it's the other way. It works the other way in relationships as well. You, you know when someone's generous with you relationally, right? If someone opens up and they begin to share about their life, here's my struggles, here's what's going on. And here's what, you know, this is what's going on in my life. How much more willing are you in return to then start to open up and share with them your own heart? This is a, a general way of living that Jesus wants his disciples to understand and, and to put this into practice for the sake of building up the covenant community, his, his church, his bride, and also for the sake of the great commission in every other area of life, right? The way you interact with your roommates, your Friends, your workmates, every, everything else. So now I want you to look back to your Bibles. We're going to read the second section here that begins in verse 39. Uh, it's talking about Jesus when it says he there. Uh, Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Stop right there. This short parable is just a warning against a warning for those who we follow. I mean, go go ahead and just picture this in your head. That you, you know, you, you see two blind men and uh, one blind man leading the other one, and they're quickly moving across a field, and, and you're far enough that you can just observe this. Uh, neither of them's capable of seeing this pit that's out in front of them, and, and for sure, you know what's going to happen. It does. They just hit the pit, and they both go tumbling in as one follows after the other one. Jesus is, is most likely in this parable talk, talking specifically uh, about the Pharisees. 
right? That's who he has this issue with. That's who he's worried about people following at this time. Uh, and also in Matthew 23, 16, Jesus calls the Pharisees. He says, you're blind guides, right? You're basically the guy in the front of this, this illustration, this parable. But, but the application of this is significantly wider than the Pharisees. It's, it's about those who, we, we, uh, who, who lead and, and we, we allow to follow or that we follow after. You see, when, when Jesus said this, there, there weren't libraries, there weren't bookstores where you could just go and pick stuff out and learn things that way. And so uh, a truly dedicated student that wanted to grow significantly and wanted to learn about God significantly would become a disciple of some wise teacher. And that's the way they referred to, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of so-and-so, I'm a disciple of such-and-such, and there were many of them. Uh, and the end result was, was that they would become just like the teacher that they follow. And so choosing who, you know, who you're going to be a disciple of, what was like choosing, that's the kind of person that I want to be like, that I want to become like. And, and here's the issue, that just like if a, if a coach knows only how to shoot a basketball the right way or the wrong way, he only knows how to shoot it the wrong way. You can only expect to learn how to shoot a basketball the wrong way. Because he's not going to know to teach you the right way. He won't even know. And so the simple answer, is, the answer here is, is to follow Jesus. And, and so we absolutely should. Right? Just forget about people and let's all follow Jesus, you know, only Jesus directly. And, and that makes a lot of sense. But throughout the New Testament, we learn that God has called some people to teach and to preach his word. He's called us all to make disciples of people. And so there's this, this structure set up this way. Now, according to God's design, we, 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 if we find ourselves or we do find ourselves sitting under teaching and preaching, we do find ourselves being discipled by people. And so we need to be careful what sort of teaching we will learn under and what books we will read. Otherwise, we're going to become like the blind following after the blind. I don't know how many people have, have picked up some terrible book and thought, I'll be fine. You know, that's not a healthy book to be reading. You know where it's going to take you. I'll be fine. You become the blind following the blind. And in this sense, we are to follow those who are truly following Jesus. To be careful about that. Only then can we, can we say in any degree what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where he says, you know, be imitators of me. And he can only say that because of the rest of that statement. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I want us to read our last portion here, beginning in verse 41, where Jesus says this. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Or take it out. Uh, it's another vision illustration. Only not blindness this time, but, but rather vision is blocked because of a log. You, you have to understand, Jesus is being funny here. We forget how, that there's humor here. Right? He's making this exaggerated thing. I, I wish there was a log somewhere here. But I'm trying to picture it. You have this ginormous log. It's ridiculous. But his whole point is he makes this ridiculous thing so that he can make this point that, you know, he might have even picked up the log and done that. Who knows? And the point that he's making is that it's easy to get worked up about other people's sin, pointing out every little infraction, condemning them, while at the same time paying no attention to your own sin. 
We've all done it. We're prone to do it. And it's a warning against that. Jesus says the person who functions this way is a hypocrite. That's a judgment, by the way. But the person who functions this way is a hypocrite. A a clear example of this might be uh, condemning a friend for watching a rated R movie while you're going home and watching pornography. Or or when you're gossiping to a group of friends about someone and telling them how they've been gossiping about you. Right? Hypocrisy. Or if you fixate on on someone's wrong theological rejection, right? They they reject God's sovereign grace of God, but then you self-righteously speak ungraciously to everyone around you, showing no grace. Uh, Parents, you ever find yourself yelling at your children because they were yelling at each other? Right? Only me, huh? (laughs) No. No, yes. Okay, that's the log in your eye. That's the log in my eye, right? Harshly judging someone when when they get caught stealing something physical and yet you're illegally downloading movies online. In in every case, right? In every case, we're so good at at justifying our own sin in this regard, right? Well, I only only look at those sites occasionally. Or or really, it's not really gossip. I just needed to to vent. They, They deserve to be yelled at. Or it's not really stealing because the movie companies, they make so much money anyway, right? We are so good at justifying our sins to ourselves, and yet that has no value in obtaining the only real justification we need, the justification that's given by Jesus freely through the gospel, through the gift of faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, one thing is clear here is that he's not saying that we're not to help our fellow Christians get the speck out of their eye. He's not saying we, we shouldn't talk about things in our lives with other people either. I think when you talk about that gossip thing, it's, it's easy to, to struggle. But what, what's the heart here, right? Is it, I want to make sure you understand that you don't like this person, or my heart's wrong and I need your help getting it right. You know what's going on in this situation. But, but here's what he's saying. It's not that you, you shouldn't help your fellow Christian get a speck out of their eye, but rather, you know, first get the log out of your eye. Because you're not real helpful otherwise. None of, you, none of you wants a surgeon doing surgery on you with a big log taped to his forehead, right? Or to his eyeball. That's not what we want in life. He, and so he's leading us to this, this place of having a, a consistent life, to value a consistent life. So yes, we, we should confront each other when we observe sin, particularly habitual sin. But let's do so with the humble grace of God that comes from properly assessing our own sin properly confessing and repenting of those sins that we struggle with. And we won't, we won't do this perfectly in this life, but, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that massive log can be removed so that we can lead another sinner into repentance. So I encourage us all to, you know, assess yourself. Dwell on the sins that you're struggling with, whether it be in the form of stealing or lying or gossiping, whatever it might be. It, it, it might do wonders even to ask a, a brother or sister, listen, do you, do you see any log in my eye? Because I wouldn't know, right? Do you, do you see any log in my eye, spiritually speaking? Hopefully you'd know if you had an actual log. Um, but ask a, a brother or sister that knows you well. Do they see any log in the eyeballs of your life? And so then... Let us always remember the mercies of God to us in the gospel. 
Let us remember the, the patience and the grace of the Lord despite our being wretched sinners. Because the deeper that we understand our own sin, the, you know, not compared to worse sinners, which is where we really like to make our comparisons, but compared to God who is holy, the, the deeper we know our sin is, the more we, we grasp that, the, the more we'll experience the grace, the more we'll understand just how massively amazing and glorious it is that God has forgiven our sin. And when we know that, when we feel when it feels what it feels like to be shown grace by our wonderful Savior, when we truly feel that, the better we'll be able to reflect His gracious character to others. That's just the reality. So church, let us follow Jesus because He is not blind. And because He and the Father and the Holy Spirit alone together are, are the only ones who are able to judge perfectly and what we know is that when he sees our sin, he, he takes the condemnation that we deserve and giving his life upon the cross in our place. And, and through the gift of faith, God unites us to Jesus Christ so that we can rest in his sovereign mercy. Brothers and sisters, let us follow after Jesus in life and rest in his grace for all of eternity. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so prone to be judgmental. We, we probably don't even notice when we're being judgmental. We do it so often. Lord, we are so prone to overlook our sin and to fixate on the sin of another. Help us to assess ourselves well. Not, not, not to just condemn ourselves, but to assess ourselves well and to, to know how to best help each other identify sins in our lives and to battle against them in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in each and every one of us whose faith is in Christ and, and who makes victory possible. May, may you be glorified in, in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.